Good morning, church. I want to welcome you and thank you for being here to worship with us. My name is Tim Power. I'm the pastor of Modern Worship here. And it's just good to see that so many people woke up on time on Daylight Savings Weekend. Who remembered? Yeah, well, you're all here. So you did remember. I'll ask the people next week, where were you? So we are in a sermon series right now called I Am, and this has been a lot of fun. We've been going through all of the I Am statements. Well, we've been going through a lot of the I Am statements. There's actually many, and you probably got a bookmark when you came in that has all of the I Am statements of Jesus, and it's great to go through there because what you say about yourself tells you a lot about your identity, right? Um, A lot of us, if if we, uh, when somebody asks us what we do, if we say, well, I'm a dad, then that tells you that you value being a dad. Or if, if you say um, your career is the first thing, it probably says that you value something about what you do on a day-to-day basis. So what we can tell from who Jesus said he is, what he values, and, and how he wants us to perceive him. And if we're following Jesus, then we want to know who Jesus is in, in the myriad of ways he, he proposes himself to be. So first week we started with, I am the way, the truth, and the light. That Jesus is our way of getting to a relationship with God the Father. Then we talked about, I am the vine, and and Sean Sean preached an awesome message. I was told it was in his top ten. And um, it, it was a message about connecting with God and being connected to the true vine. Um, Then we talked last week about I am the bread of life, that Jesus is the one thing that can truly satisfy the hungers that we have. And we think that we can satisfy the hungers with a lot of other things in our lives. We we try to put our career first. We might try to put relationships or or maybe other things in front of God. But really the thing that's going to satisfy us more than anything is to, to have this relationship with Jesus that is transforming who we are, so the bread of life. And this week, we're going to be talking about Jesus is the light of the world. It just so happens, I I don't know if Pastor Terry, in planning these weeks, had planned that it would fall on daylight savings time, that the light of the world. Now, it's coincidental that we're talking about this. Do you know that, uh, who who knows, I had to go back and look some of of this stuff up. Who, Who proposed daylight savings first time? Got any history buffs? Yes, it was Benjamin Franklin. And so Benjamin Franklin was basically trying to find a way to save money. Okay, so he was basically thinking, well, businesses have to close earlier when there's less daylight and farmers can't do as much farming. And so it, it was an economic thing. But see, sunlight actually affects a lot more than our economy. It affects so much. In fact, um, did you know that daylight affects your mood? Probably some of you, yes, you're probably being affected today by a little bit less daylight than, than you would like outside. Now, uh, a few years back, Dr. Normal Rosenthal from Georgetown University coined the term seasonal affective disorder. And his research showed that seasons with less sunlight and we- uh, weather that force people indoors cause people to feel higher levels of sadness, weariness loneliness and hopelessness. And the inverse of that is also true. Seasons with more sunlight cause people to feel more joy, more energy, and more vitality. Not only that, did you know that sunlight can make you skinny? I need some sunlight. How about you? So, so get this. Some research shows that sunlight is nature's most effective appetite suppressor. During sunny days, people then eat less, 
and are more physically active. But get this, do you know that sunlight can make you a better person? Wow, check this out. So we know sunlight improves people's moods, right? Well, there was a 2016 study published in the psychology journal Cognition, which found that when confronted with a moral dilemma, you are far more likely to do the right thing if you are in a good mood. If you're in a good mood, you make better moral decisions. That means sunlight makes you a better person. I'll bet you just learned something new today, didn't you? I say all of this to say that light has an incredible influence on us, doesn't it? Light affects everything. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it's a very profound statement. Uh, But I think oftentimes we look at this statement, we just think of it kind of outside the context of the story that is told in, in the book of John. So what I want to do is go back to the beginning of the chapter that Jesus makes a statement in and kind of show you what led up to him saying this very profound statement that I am the light of the world. I'm going to start in John chapter 8 and verse 1. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he returned to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and taught them. The legal experts and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Placing her in the center of the group, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said, this, they, uh, they said this to test him because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him. So he stood up and replied, whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were there, were left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, No one, sir. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. Jesus continues to teach in the temple. Jesus spoke to the people again, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. Now, this, this passage of Scripture, it really contrasts two theological ideas. So I want you to say these words with me aloud. The law, the law, and the light. The law and the light. Now, first, let's take a look at the law. The, the Bible, in, in the Bible, the law refers to the Old Testament rules and regulations that governed the religious life of the time. Uh, These rules can be found in the first five books of the Bible, commonly referred to as the Torah. Uh, These these were rules and regulations, and they were worth checking out. There's some wacky regulations. There's one regulation where it says that you are not to cook a goat in its mother's milk. If it's a regulation, that meant this was a problem. Like, this was getting out of hand. People were doing too much of it. That's weird to me. So... These, there's some interesting laws. If you want a Cliff Notes version of the, the laws, you can look at the Ten Commandments, and you probably remember those. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't have any other gods before me. I'm sure you've heard some of these before. Now, the law existed for a very specific purpose, and we see that borne out in what these Pharisees and teachers of the law were doing with this woman. The law's specific reason for existing 
was to condemn. It was to condemn us. Now, that, that might seem a little bit funny, but here's the idea. If you look at even the Ten Commandments, they sometimes, we, they look like they're just great rules for living, but here's what, you do, what, what I want you to try to do. Try to keep them all for a week. Can you do it? Here's, I, want, I want to test you guys. Who in here has never, um, has never told a lie? Okay, if, I want you to look around the room, and if anybody has never told a lie and their hand is up, I want you to look at them and say, liar! Okay, uh, who here has never stolen anything, ever? Just never stolen anything, ever? I was going to say, I know you've got like 10 Salem pens in your car, and three Salem mugs in the back seat. So, so the, these are the rules and regulations. Now, the idea was that if you committed these, you, you were worthy of punishment. That, that's the idea. So the law doesn't, it's not just a way of living. It's not just try to live up to this because when you try, you find that you cannot. And I think that um, some, some people have this tendency to think that uh, Christians are hypocritical, that, that we basically just want to condemn everybody, and we want to tell everybody, you're not following the rules. If you don't follow these rules, then you are to be condemned. And really, the problem with that is it's only half of the story. And honestly, if that was the, the whole story, I wouldn't want to be a Christian. Okay, That is the law. The law exists to condemn, but the law is not without its purpose. Okay, The law does exist to tell us that we are in the wrong. But here's the good part about that. If you have no sin, if you don't think that you're a sinner, you have no need for a savior. If you have no need for, uh, if you have no sin, then you have no need for a savior. If you have no need for a savior, this isn't the best place for you guys. I would have a lot of more fun things to do on a Sunday morning. This is a place for sinners because it is a place where we encounter a savior. See, the law is here to condemn. And that's what it's being used for in this story. So we get that. That's the first half, is the law condemns, but the light brings life. The Greek word for, for light, when Jesus calls himself the light of the world, is phos. And you probably know that word for phosphorescent. So it's, it's a word for light. But it doesn't just mean light. In the Greek, it's a deeper meaning. In fact, it means the effect that light has on things as well. Do you remember what the first thing God said to create the universe was? Let there be light. We're told that before that, the world was dark and formless, void. So there was no form to it. And when he spoke light, there was suddenly form. There was suddenly something transformed. And when we talk about the phos in the New Testament, the light that Jesus brings, it's not just a light that illuminates, it's a light that transforms. I want to look again at this story. We see these religious leaders, and they're bringing this adulterous woman to Jesus. Isn't it interesting they only bring the woman? It takes two to tango, and they're bringing the woman, but not the man. That, that's a little bit of a double standard, but we'll, we'll move beyond that for a moment. And she had been caught in an act, this, this, this shameful act and dragged into public. I want you to just put yourself back there. Sometimes I think it's really helpful to use our imaginations when we get into reading the Bible. Um, and, and not just our intellect, but our imaginations. And, and try to think from her perspective, 
this is probably her most shameful, most exposed moment in her entire life. She's just being dragged into public and accused of something that, that she could be actually stoned to death. She, she could be stoned and not in a recreational sense. Some of you got that. Um, this, this was a real thing. She could be punished for this uh, in, in, in very, very harsh terms. And she is, is, is facing death. And she's exposed. She is vulnerable. And I want you to think about this. She's there, and what they're trying to do, these religious leaders are trying to say... Put, put Jesus in a dichotomy. So basically, make him make a decision between one of two things. They, they either want him to say that she should be condemned, which is what the Old Testament law said. She should be condemned for what she's done because she has committed adultery. Or he could let her off the hook, in which case he would be a heretic according to their religious laws and regulations. Um, as is usually the case, Jesus does neither of these things, and what he does is really, really interesting. He asks which of them has sinned or has not sinned and that that should be the person who throws the first stone. Now, right after he does that, he starts doing what? Did you get that in the passage? He starts writing on the ground. Now, I used to always just look past that. Now, I've, I've read, there's some commentaries and there's actually some scholarship to suggest that this might be true. Uh, in fact, some later copies of John uh, state that it is true that Jesus may have been writing down the sins of the men that were condemning her. Jesus may have been writing their sins in the sand. Now, even if he wasn't doing that physically, we can tell that he was writing it on their heart. He was writing down the sins that they committed on their hearts because from the oldest to the youngest, now why did the oldest leave first? I don't know, maybe they just had a longer list. But they leave first, and then the younger men start to leave. And finally, there's nobody left, and, and Jesus says, who's here to condemn you? And she says, no one. And he said, then neither will I. I think this is important to note. Jesus does not say, hey, between me and you, adultery is not a big deal. Those guys are just, you know, those guys are just too uptight. He is not overlooking her sin. Now, I want, I want to say that because Jesus does take sin very seriously because, think about this. He took your sin so seriously. He said, I will not condemn you, but I would be condemned for you. It doesn't mean that there's no condemnation for sin, but it's not laid on us. It's laid on our Savior, Jesus. He's the light. He came not to condemn, but to bring life. Now, Jesus' last words to her are pretty interesting. He tells her to go and sin no more. He is saying that to this woman who was just caught in sin. She obviously has patterns of sin in her life that, that she is dealing with, and yet he says, go and sin no more. See, the strange thing is, before this, weren't we just saying that if you try to sin no more, if you try to follow the commandments on your own, you're going to fail. That's what the law tells us is that we try to do it and we try to do it. Jesus doesn't tell her, go and try really hard not to sin anymore. He doesn't say, go try your best. He says, go and sin no more. He seems to be pointing to a deeper truth. He's saying this. He's saying, the light has shone on you. You are not condemned. The light has shone on you and you're different now. 
You don't have to have that anymore. He spoke these words right afterwards. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I want you really, really to, to get how profound this is. Jesus is saying that when the light of Christ shines upon you, everything else looks different. In the light of Christ, those sins that looked so good in the darkness don't look good anymore. The sins that looked so appetizing, when the light of Christ is shined upon you, you don't even want it anymore. That's what's different. That's what's different. The light of Christ reveals a new reality in those who follow Jesus. And when the light of Christ is on them, everything looks different. In the light of Christ, the sins that once enslaved you have their chains broken off of you. And in the light of Christ, what looked good in darkness looks gross in the light. In the light of Christ, the man with the sign on the exit ramp who's begging for Whatever you can give isn't just a lazy parasite. He's a child of God who desperately needs a community of love. In the light of Christ, that difficult person at work that you butt heads with every day, that difficult person in your home that you butt heads with every day, is not just a toxic personality you need to get rid of. They're a child of God, every bit as deserving of his great love as you are. In the light of Christ, each face that you see in passing at the store, on the way to work, each face is a child of God who, even if they were the only person on earth, Jesus loved them so much that he said, I would not condemn you, but I would be condemned for you. Each face you see, Jesus would have died for them if they were the only person on the earth. When you look at everything through the light of Christ, everything looks different, doesn't it? I was um, I watch uh, this this show with my kids called Brain Games. Anybody else seen that show? So it's a lot of fun to watch. They they do a lot of things. It's mostly about the mind, how the mind works, and um, they they have a lot of things where they play tricks on your brain. And I'm gonna play a trick on your brain really quickly. Um, so. In a minute, we're going to put up a video, and it's a short video. It's maybe a minute long. What I want you to do is at the center, there's going to be a circle of dots. I want you to stare at the center. There's a little cross in the center, okay? And I want you to look your eyes just on the cross. Just look your eyes on the cross. So let's put that up. Do you see the green dot that's going around just in the periphery? Here's the interesting thing. That green dot doesn't really exist. Now look at, look at it now. It's just the dots are disappearing, right? But when you focus right there in the center, what do you see? A green dot, right? Kind of mind-blowing, right? I think that's kind of interesting. What's really happening is that, that your eyes, the receptors, basically, um, they, they get fatigued when you're, when you're focusing on one thing, so it changes. Uh, what, what, what one of my kids was saying to me was like, Dad, look, it's the cross in the middle. And I thought, that is so true, you know. When you put your focus on the cross, everything around it looks different. When you put your focus on the cross, everything around it looks different.